now? Oh, yes, quite safe now. The power cable generated an electrical field and confused their tiny metal minds. You might almost say they've had a complete metal breakdown. Ooh, I'm so sorry. When I say run... Run! This week in time travel is under siege today. We're joined by Robert Smith as we take a look back at Patrick Troughton's doctor. Welcome to the January 23rd edition of This Week in Time Travel. Hi, Alyssa. Hey, Chip. Good to see you. It's good to see you, too. Um, it's good to see all of our listeners, except we can't. Old podcast joke. Are you tired of them yet? Oh, dear. I apologize on his behalf to everybody. I'm so sorry. Uh, pretty light news week. It couldn't be lighter, actually. But it couldn't be any more exciting either. We had really incredible news come out of one of our local fan-run conventions, Regeneration Who. They are the first convention to get Peter Capaldi after his run ended in Twice Upon a Time. Yes, folks, he's coming to the States. He is coming to Baltimore's Regeneration Who convention. And oh my God, I am so excited. I was hopeful, but I was not committed to going to Regeneration Who. And as soon as the announcement came, I was on the website just immediately. Let's look back for just a second here. The first convention that Stephen Moffat did after wrapping up his career was Gallifrey One. The first convention that Peter Capaldi is doing after wrapping up his run is Regeneration Who? And that speaks so well of the people who run these fan-run, not super big, not networked, not Creation Con, not Wizard World, none, not, not any of this stuff. These are smaller-scaled productions run by people who deeply care about Doctor Who. And Stephen Moffat and Peter Capaldi have apparently just responded to that. And it is glorious. I can't speak to having been at a convention before with Stephen Moffat, but I have been at a big, quote unquote, professional convention with Peter Capaldi before. Um, and I have to say that the experience was subpar at best. The convention massively oversold him for autographs and for photo opportunities. His panel started, I think, must have been an hour and a half late because they so oversold all of the photographs that there was just no time whatsoever to get him and Jenna Coleman to the panel on time. And he was just an absolute gentleman about the entire thing. He worked so hard to make every person in that autograph and photo line feel respected and valued and appreciated for taking the time to see him. And he really made it a unique experience for everyone under the worst possible circumstances. But I am so glad that he is coming to Regeneration. I think it is going to be a much better experience for him and the fans. I have been at Regeneration Who before. Um, I've also been at some of their sister conventions that's run by the same group of people. And I can vouch for trusting these folks to handle this appropriately, to make sure that everybody gets the appropriate amount of time with him, that they are respectful of his time and space, and that it's going to be a good experience for the actors and the fans all around. They've just 
always put on a great show every year. So yeah, come see us there. Uh, we are definitely both going to be there. And we hope that you can join us and have a great time there as well. Everything that you've told me, Alyssa, and everything that I've heard about Regen is that it is a welcoming, safe, inclusive convention. It's a place that really values fans. It's a newer convention than Gallifrey by a long shot. But I, I keep going back to this, and I don't want to ignore, you know, in all of the hullabaloo over Peter Capaldi at Regen, uh, you know, I don't want people to miss the fact that Gallifrey One, which is coming up with uh, Stephen Moffat there, you know, these are both so well run and so fan centered. I, I'm just super excited and I can't wait to see you and our friends in Baltimore for Regen. Regeneration Who, link is in our show notes. Also, quick note about Gallifrey One. The panelists have started to receive their schedules and we will be both at Gallifrey One on various panels. I will be hosting a meetup sometime over the weekend for readers of my blog, Whovian Feminism. I'm sure that Chip and I will both be there and do an impromptu, hey, come see us in the lobby for listeners of This Week in Time Travel. So keep an eye on this space. Keep an eye on our Twitter account. We will be sure to share you all of our schedules so that way you can come see us if you are going to be there at Gallifrey One. Uh, we're just working out the final little things in the system and getting our schedules put together. And ultimately, I will actually buy my plane tickets. Chip! Chip, it is next month! Chip, what are you doing? Chip, you told me you were doing that already. <laughs> Chip! I'm sorry. We're going to be back in a few quick minutes when Chip goes to Orbitz and buys his plane tickets. This week on The Incomparable Network. Jason and friends tackle a Canadian time travel show, Travelers, now available on Netflix, on the flagship show, The Incomparable. Kathy Campbell launches a new show where podcasters introduce you to other podcasts. It's podcasts all the way down on Friends in Your Ears. And on Defocused with Joe Rosenstiel and Dan Sturm, their episode title is Your Bougie Flesh Burger. We don't even know. We just wanted to mention it. All this and more at TheIncomparable.com. So, Alyssa, we made our plans to talk about the second Doctor as we continue our series going Doctor by Doctor leading up to Jodie Whittaker. And we were connected with our good friend, who is co-author with Graham Burke of a number of books about Doctor Who and also edited the Outside In anthologies. His name is Robert Smith. Excuse me, Robert Smith? He has a question mark at the end of his name, so uh, you got to inflect at the end. We were trying to figure out when we were going to record, and he said, well, I'm going to be in your hometown, Chip. Except he didn't know that this is my hometown. He just happened to be in my hometown this weekend. So we staked ourselves out at a coffee shop and we got you on Skype and we talked about the second doctor. We're doing it live, folks. We're doing it live. And we're back to talk about the second doctor. Joining us for this conversation is Robert Smith. Um, so thank you, Robert, so much for joining us to talk about Patrick Troughton today. Oh, thanks very much for having me. So we wanted to sort of dig into what makes these characters so important. And 
you know, obviously one of the things that makes Patrick Troughton so important is that he was the second. He was the first to come after a regeneration and really bring this show into a new era that would let it continue forward. What to you makes the second Doctor so important within Doctor Who? Yeah, I, th- I think that's that's a really key point because he was the second Doctor, but there's many ways in which he was the first. The, what, what William Hartnell is doing is in many ways so different from what everyone else did. I think Patrick Troutman set the scene and almost every Doctor kind of followed him. And yet in a funny way, none of them were able to. And so I think they, he established the Doctor as a much more heroic character. He established the Doctor as, you know, a kind of, you know, smart-talking kind of, you know, sly character who would kind of, you know, come at you from a different angle and so on. Um, he also established, well, I think his era established the, the show as kind of more of a kind of standard kind of series in a funny way. Um, the William Hartnell era is all over the map in what it's doing. It's, it's you know doing historicals it's doing you know sideways in time things it's doing all kinds of weird stuff and yet the Patrick Troutner is much more solidly down the line you've got um, you know sort of based under siege type formatting and you know that leads into sort of unit years later and gothic horror and things like that we, we get these tropes I think from the, the second Doctor's era I think the second Doctor himself is is so so slippery in many ways uh, it's very hard to get a handle on him I, I feel like we're still debating him you know 50 years on because we'll, we'll never do that we'll never properly get a handle on what, what he was doing um, and yet we all think we know as well and, and I love that kind of discontinuity that's happening there that's right it's, it sort of feels to me like with Patrick Troughton Doctor Who suddenly has a format that it didn't have before that, yeah. we, that you can look at Doctor Who and say this is what Doctor Who is mm-hmm that's right. Yes, exactly. And and I think also he's a lot younger than the first Doctor, which which suddenly set the tone. Um, you know, and I'm sure there were people in 1967 complaining about this new young guy or whatever. Um, but you know, we we now think of the Doctor as a much younger person, and I think that was true, sort of you know, particularly from like sort of Tom Baker onwards. And people were saying Tom Baker was too young, but you know, Troughton is 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 this sort of ageless kind of a character as well. That you know, I think both the actor and the character, um, you know, you, you have a hard time pinning down how old they are, and you don't with John Pertwee at all, even though Pertwee and Troughton were the same age exactly. Yeah, Pertwee definitely uh, carries his age very differently than Troughton does. With the Troughton era, you have a lot of the uh, establishment of things that we think are going to be iconic to the character. I remember going back and watching the first and second Doctor for the first time and going, what do you mean the sonic screwdriver only shows up now? Like, (laughs) isn't this a thing that has always been there with the character? Do you think having that sort of bric-a-brac around the character um, is really sort of what defined him as being the template for future doctors even more so than uh, Hartnell did. Yeah, I, I, I think I think it builds the Doctor Who universe in that time. And so, I mean, you had the, the Daleks before. You did have the Cybermen in the very last story of William Hartnell, but they're basically a Troughton monster. They, they come back again and again and again. Uh, you've got, you know, you've sort of got the Yeti, but you've got, you know, kind of the Ice Warriors. You, you've kind of got this sort of ancillary set of, you know, like monsters happening around. Uh, of course, you have the Time Lords too. I mean, even though we had a Time Lord, but it wasn't named in the first Doctor's era. Uh, you, you see a lot of consolidation happening, I think, in the second Doctor's era, where, where suddenly this is what the show is and this is what the show goes on to be. Um, I, I think somebody said that, you know, the only classic series monster that appeared three times that didn't appear in the Troughton era was the Sontarans. And so, so effectively, Doctor Who is kind of defined... As of, as of the end of the Troughton era, that's what Doctor Who is. You pretty much know it. Um, and, you know, yes, there's variations on a theme, and yes, there's other things to do, um, but it's remarkable how much development there is there. I tend to think of the third Doctor as sort of the first moment in which the Doctor sort of becomes a heroic figure. But am I wrong? Does Troughton reach that level? That's, that's a really good point, because I think that Troughton is sort of 
in many ways an anti-hero, just the way the first Doctor was, except not in any remotely similar way. <laughs> and so, yeah, the third Doctor is, you know, he's out and proud and he's, you know, riding in Bessie and, you know, waving a screwdriver around. And you have this very sort of, you know, iconic image of him. Uh, but the second Doctor, he somehow manages to win and you don't really know how he's done it. And, and so it's like, oops, I accidentally won the day and, oh, maybe I didn't mean to after all. And, you know, it's kind of, you know, maybe it all didn't work and it's all, you know, it feels like a house of cards just waiting to collapse. And yet he seems to kind of get away with it. And so it feels like he's dancing on the edge all the time, you know, probably doing a little jig while playing the recorder at, the, at this. Um, because it, I guess he's, he's a very uncertain doctor. He's, he's the one that you kind of want to put faith in and aren't quite sure you should. And that's, that's very edgy in a lot of ways. And I'm sure that was kind of a bit unsettling for all the, all the kids at the time, being like, I just don't know if I can trust this guy. Like, he sort of seems like he's one of us, and yet, you know, I, I mean, sort of Power of the Daleks is very classic in the sense of, like, you know, like, at the end, he's like, oops, did I do that? Did I win? Did, you know, and, and then also at the end, the Dalek sort of raises its ice stalk, and you think, like, you know, maybe he didn't after all. And, and, and that, that feels very iconic for the second Doctor. So one of, I want to go back to what you said about the slipperiness of the second Doctor. Um, and I think one of the things that makes uh, the second Doctor feel a little more slippery to me is that so much of his era is missing that it feels harder to go back and sort of get that same sense of continuity that you do with other Doctors. You know, with the first Doctor, there is a significant gap that's missing, but there's a significant part of it that remains intact. So I feel like I have a lot of that development. So much of Troughton's early episodes are gone um, that, to me, it feels like I'm sort of jumping in and out of Troughton's era to be able to sort of get a hold of the character. Do you think that's what makes him feel a little bit like that to modern viewers who didn't get to watch it the first time around? Yeah, I would say absolutely. It's it's uh, it's the unavoidable elephant of the room. You can't you can't avoid talking about when you come to the second Doctor because even more than the first, his era suffers so much from from what's gone. And I think it, it, actually you, you raise a good point because early on his stuff is missing. So the the first Doctor you can you can watch up to Marco Polo, you can watch everything, and then okay you miss one, and then you can watch sort of almost everything else for a long time, and then later on there's some gaps. But by the time those gaps come around, you know what this character is, you know what he's doing, you know what's happening. It, it's it's fine. Um, whereas the second Doctor, you can't watch his first story, you know you can't watch his second story you can't really watch much of any any of the first season you know you watch isolated episodes here and there which aren't very good at giving you a picture um when it comes to season five and plus animations we have a better picture than we've had but i think you know the sort of recent finds of episodes or you know five years ago now but you know and also recent you know animations and so on have shown us that we didn't really know what this era was about i mean i think the enemy of the world proves that you know we thought we knew this story we thought we knew based on one episode that turns out to be kind of the cheap one in the middle and that's kind of a comedy relief one and that was nothing like the sort of white hot intensity of this this episode um and and in particular trans performance is is astonishing in this and so yeah i, I mean i always liken it to you know, we, we, we think we're sort of Doctor Who archaeologists. We're trying to unearth, you know, what was happening based on, you know, a few broken plates, uh, some coins and half a wall somewhere. And then someone comes along and unearths the church and you're like, yeah, I had no idea what this village looked like. Like this is, you know, <laughs> we, we, you know, anyone who thinks they know what the Macro Terror is actually like, you know, is lying because you, you don't. You, you, we think we have ideas. We're trying to piece it together, but we have to fill in so much of the gaps ourselves. And there's a way in which I kind of can't help thinking that this is part of the second Doctor's plan all along. You know, he was probably half erasing himself from history so that he can keep himself as slippery as possible because that's just exactly the kind of thing he would do so chip i know you are still making your way through a lot of classic uh eras how far have you gotten through the second doctor and sort of what's your impression of his doctor at this moment i can't help but look at patrick troughton through the lens of matt smith 
um, and all the stories about how Matt Smith watched the Tomb of the Cybermen and immediately was like, okay, I get it. I get who the Doctor is now. I'm real spotty in my second Doctor watching, but when I watched The Enemy of the World in the Web of Fear along with everybody else, and I was coming in pretty cold with no preconceptions of what either of those stories was like, I remember feeling like everybody around me was so much more excited about Web of Fear. And I found it to be kind of a dull story, whereas the enemy of the world, aside from the goofiness of the conceit that this evil uh, dictator has the same face as uh, the second doctor, it's, it's just a tour de force for both the second doctor as a character and for Patrick Troughton as an actor. The cunning, as Robert says, the slipperiness, the tendency to mask how effective uh, uh, and how uh, capable he is uh, in, in, through, through his mannerisms and his sort of uh, hangdog expression. Um, the Enemy of the World is one of my favorite Doctor Who stories, and that Doctor feels very much like um, a, a bookend for Matt Smith. He feels very familiar to me. Yeah, actually, I would say when, when I was watching him in the world, I was so surprised that, that I, I had this moment of being like, oh, yeah, we're t- watching Salamander. And it didn't occur to me it was Patrick Troughton. I'm like, wait, I've forgotten that's Patrick Troughton on the screen because the, the intensity of the acting is so strong uh, that I just got so caught up in the story. And, and that, is, that is an amazing thing. And, you, you, you know, for me, as someone who knew about this, loved the novel, um, you know, was kind of disappointed by the one episode I'd seen, you know, was so excited to kind of see it in some ways. And I was just so swept up in it. And, and that, that to me was, was just incredible. You know, Enemy of the World uh, actually really reminded me of modern episodes of Doctor Who because it gave Troughton something unique and challenging to do, which I did not recall seeing in Doctor Who beforehand. You know, it reminded me a lot of um, episodes like uh, actually uh, Heaven Sent, where the actor is given something very technically challenging to do uh, that Troughton has to play two very, very different characters um, on entirely different paths during the the, the episode. Um, and it, it really struck me as being very modern in tone that way, that it, it seemed set up to give Troughton a really uh, incredible acting challenge. And he uh, just utterly delivered with that. I was exactly like you. Uh, I didn't... I forgot sometimes that I was watching Troughton in two different roles because he inhibited them so differently and they both became such different characters that I I forgot that they were played by the same man. It was really incredible. I want to talk a little bit about what you think are some of the best episodes from Troughton's era. Not necessarily the best for beginners to start with. We're going to get to that in the moment. But like, if you had to pick out two or three of the best episodes that Troughton did, what would you pick out? I guess I, I recently did a rewatch uh, when I was writing Who's 50 uh, because we were looking at sort of, you know, kind of the whole of Doctor Who in, in order in a sense. And so we weren't watching every episode, but we were kind of jumping through. And so when I hit the Troughton era, I found I loved it way more than I thought I would even. And, and so 
something like Tomb of the Cybermen is a problematic story in terms of the, the racism stuff, but otherwise it's an astonishing story. I, I must say I was really, really impressed with this. And I think, you know, that's a story that's, that's flip-flopped a lot in, in fandom. At first it was, you know, it was gone, but it was held up as the greatest thing ever. Then it was found and, and you know, it was in some ways disappointing compared to what people had been expecting. But then I think actually for me it's come around, you know, much more. This is like, this is a, an amazing story. It's really cool. And, you know, like other Doctor Who, like Talons of Wing Chiang or so on, it's got a problematic thing sitting at the center. So that makes it difficult to watch. So, yeah, difficult for newbies maybe, difficult for someone with, you know, today's eyes. But as a story, is, is, you know, really, really, really great. Um, Enemy of the World, of course, is fantastic. Um, I, of the existing stories, uh, Mind Rubber is, is just out there. Like, like, you know, I can't believe they did that in Doctor Who. Still today, I cannot believe they did that in Doctor Who. It's, you know, and, and that was one I, that's one I grew up with. I, I was, you know, watching that one. That was one of two Troughton stories that they showed when I was a kid. Um, so that's, that's been with me for a very long time, and I'm still amazed by it. It's, it's you know... It's a fantastic story. And it's sort of sitting in the, you know, more problematic season six, which is all over the map. And yet, you know, you're like, wow, they pulled that out. And that's, you know, that, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, I wanted to talk about Mind Robber as well. Uh, I watched that for the first time with you, Alyssa. And I was not expecting great things from it because what is this thing about a land of fiction? Why would this, what, this makes no sense to me. And... The combination of just the surrealism of it with, in the end, sort of bringing it back to uh, something that sort of grounds it in what we come to recognize as a traditional sort of Doctor Who approach to science fiction. Um, there's a reason why all of this weird stuff is happening. There's, it feels like if you can get past the surrealism of the first episodes, it's it's not a bad story to give to a new Doctor Who viewer, but it's certainly also a um, you know in the in the end it's the Doctor versus the Master of the Land of Fiction being heroic, trying to stop the nefarious plan. It doesn't get more Doctorish than that. You all sort of highlighted a lot of the episodes um, that I think um, are really really important. I think um, one that I wanted to mention was Seeds of Death, which I find to be a kind of really enjoyable and delightful base under siege story because it it's much more expansive than that. It's like multiple bases under siege. So you get to see uh, a lot of different interesting scenarios and it's also Patrick Troughton I think at some of his most fun weirdly for this story um, that he really leads into some of the vaudeville humor uh, aspects um, which I personally love I think some of my favorite moments of Troughton's Doctor are the more humorous ones um, because he brings such a genuine joy and delight to the things that he's doing and uh, a real kind of slapstick humor that lands very well for Doctor Who, which I appreciate. Also wanted to talk about the War Games, which is just such a huge episode from so many different perspectives, but it is interesting to see the Doctor finally get to interact with Time Lords, but also to see that genuine rage and anger that he has for what the people in the War Games are being subjected to. And then, of course, I have to mention Tomb of the Cybermen, which is my favorite Second Doctor story. It is my absolute comfort food story uh, that I go back to uh, over and over and over again. Um, It is very problematic uh, and racist with regards to the treatment of its characters of color, but there are so many deeply touching moments that can sort of be plucked out from that episode, and 
it's something that you can imagine any doctor saying to any companion when he's comforting Victoria on the death of her father. But there's something so essential to the relationship that the second doctor is building there and how he's treating her that it's uh, really just a delight to watch those two actors play that scene. So now I want to talk a little bit about how to get people into the Second Doctor era. Want to pick out one, maybe two episodes that you think would be the perfect entry point for a new person into the Second Doctor's era? Oh, good question. Uh, so, so I will say that when uh, Power of the Daleks was showing, you know, in its animated form in the movie theater, um, I brought my girlfriend along who had seen a grand total of two classic stories. Uh, and so she'd, she'd watched Attack of the Cybermen and then The Tenth Planet. And we only watched The Tenth Planet just as a kind of segue into we're going to see The Power of the Daleks. And she loved it. She, and she didn't think she would. She said, can I bring my phone and can I be on my phone the whole time? And I said, if you want, sure. You know, <laughs> and she barely was. She, she actually was like, this is great stuff. This is really good. And okay, it's animated, but I actually don't think that's a huge problem. I think that, you know, if, if the person sort of knows why it's animated, then, then you're good to go. The animation can be a little clunky as, at times, but I think, you know, that's, that's been overstated by fans who get very upset about these things. I think it's perfectly fine. It gives me a way into the story. It's a story I kind of knew about the first half of pretty well and the second half not at all, and I loved watching it, and I, I think that's a good one. Uh, in fact, you know, my, my girlfriend's comment was the only annoying thing was he played that recorder really loudly. <laughs> kind of like, if that's your complaint, we're good to go. <laughs> That, that's a complaint that will be echoed by many different people, including multiple doctors. So she's in good company. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to belabor the point, but I'll go back to the mind robber again. I just think that it is uh, surprisingly accessible given uh, the way it begins. I'm also going to have to go with that because I was the one that showed you that one. Um, I think it is sort of a quintessential Second Doctor episode, that it gets to all sorts of different aspects of the Doctor that Patrick Troughton can play. And it is both silly and serious uh, and has genuinely fun and horrifying moments uh, in spades. So uh, I I enjoy that one. I think it's a good entry point for new people to uh, not just have an accessible entry into the Second Doctor era, but also to uh, really get to see all that that era can offer. Shall we talk a little bit about the Doctor's relationship with his companions and how that changed from uh, the Hartnell years? Absolutely. Let's do that. Yeah, I mean, obviously, Jamie is an extremely iconic character when it comes to the second Doctor. Um, and, you know, he's in all but one story, and, and they're, they're really a great double act. Um, but I think that each of the, the sort of, you know, two sort of primary female characters, you've got Victoria, and then you've got Zoe, uh, with, with the three of them, you really have this ensemble cast. And, and I guess, Chip, you were saying that, you know, it kind of, you come back to the Matt Smith era, that feels very similar, actually, to the sort of the Amy Rory Doctor dynamic, where it feels kind of three equals in a, in a lot of ways. And so... So that's that's not that's not very similar at all. Even though the first Doctor sort of started with this kind of large group of people, he was clearly the one who knew more and had more experience and so on. And, and they were sort of trailing around after him in, in a lot of ways. Whereas with you know you sort of get this iconic image of like the three of them hugging each other at all times and kind of clinging onto each other um, because that's you know th- their comedy worked very well together and and you know they had, they had this great rapport clearly off screen as well. Yeah, I feel like the partnership between the Doctor and Jamie, although that's to a certain extent at the expense of Victoria and Zoe, that is a template for the Ninth Doctor and Rose, the Eleventh Doctor and Amy, the Twelfth Doctor and Clara, and the Twelfth Doctor and Bill, that sort of tight collaboration and trust between the characters and between the actors, I think, 
I think this is when the companion characters start to come more alive as characters. As opposed to, um, you know, with the original TARDIS team, they weren't quite companions. They were co-leads in a way. Um, Ian was the man of action of uh, those early episodes. It's a whole new dynamic uh, that Troughton and his companions bring that really does form a template for the rest of the series. You just made me think a bit about, you know, people are always saying, like, oh, we can't do companions from history because it'll just fail. Um, and, you know, the, the previous times they tried to do it, you know, with some of the first Doctor's companions, it didn't work that well. But Jamie is the sort of perfect example of a companion from history who just works. And he kind of works partly because they file the serial numbers off and just sort of have him be this sort of, you know, dog's body who sort of follows the Doctor around and kind of just ask the dumb questions, not necessarily because he's from out of time, but just because that's who the character is and that's good comic relief and so on. Uh, but, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting that, you know, it's not too big a deal is made of the fact of you know he doesn't know sort of basic things in the 20th century when they appear there but but yeah it's a, it's a historical companion that, that really sings after you're on the TARDIS for a while you start to pick things up mm-hmm. yes <laughs> I think the other thing too is he's not an idiot you know he may not know modern things as well as you know a modern companion would uh, but he knows when to run he knows when to stay and fight uh, and he's you know he he was he approaches situations with his own knowledge of this is what I need to do to survive and this is how I'm going to fight to protect people who I care about. Um, and so there's occasional moments where they use his lack of knowledge as comic relief. Um, but even Victoria, for all that, she's uh, written to be the timid one, the, the screamer who is more wary of time traveling uh, than Jamie is they they don't write them to be stupid and dumb and to not know how to approach modern situations they write them as people who occasionally need to be told a word for something but can survive and make it through uh, and have their own intelligence and ways of approaching dangerous situations so they treat them like characters and not uh caricatures from whatever time period that they're coming from. I find Zoe particularly interesting as well because she's one of the first, like, truly exceptional companions. Uh, You know, Susan is the doctor's granddaughter, so we expect her to be like him in some respects. But Zoe comes in as sort of not exactly the girl off the street, but she's any girl. She's a girl who comes in to the TARDIS and she has exceptional abilities that rival the doctors, uh, which is a pretty interesting relationship to build of that. He has sort of a parenting relationship with her, but also treats her as an equal. And it's interesting to see how her character archetype of the exceptional woman is copied and used again and again in later years as they bring in other companions with these exceptional abilities to be around the doctor, that he's both in a position of needing to rely on them, but also in many ways he's brought in to sort of temper them. Yeah, I think actually the fact that he even defers to her on you know various occasions is is quite impressive because uh, you see sort of later episodes if it's you know Tom Baker versus the first Romana that they kind of go head to head at it and he's not deferring to her at all he's sort of battling and then kind of losing in, in you know many ways um, but the second Doctor is just like okay well you know you're kind of the expert on this and you know you, you take over here and 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 it's not really questioned that you know she's sort of in many ways equally capable as the Doctor and. That's you know that's not a, that's not a point of contention, and they just kind of go on and you know move on to the next thing from that, which I, which I really really like. It's it's quite progressive for its time. 
Uh, the, the one thing we haven't talked about is sort of Trouton comes back a lot. He's back in the Three Doctors, the Five Doctors, the Two Doctors, and he kind of comes back as a similar but not quite the same character. And for many people, of course, that was their entry into the Second Doctor. That's often all we knew about the Second Doctor for a long time. Um, and it's his, you know, he, he kind of carries the day in many ways. He, I think he, he carries the Three Doctors really well. Um, and obviously William Hartnell couldn't, and so, so he's doing a lot of the, the heavy lifting there. I think he carries the Five Doctors enormously that, you know, Without Tom Baker in the Five Doctors, you know, you sort of they're, they're floundering around a little bit for what to do. And they kind of give Peter Davison a lot more of the role than he probably would have otherwise got. So it's again the Second Doctor who's kind of picking up the weight of the past. Um, and then in the Two Doctors, it's it's a very very bizarre story in many ways. You just kind of got the Second Doctor wondering about his business and then running into the the Six. And then you know, is he on a mission for the Time Lords or what? You know, and and yet you know, there's something about this Doctor that just effortlessly falls back into this this kind of same kind of role, um, and yet also a completely different kind of a role as well. Uh, so so I, I find it very interesting that he kind of sort of seems to just exist in this other world. He does. And he's also really the character that sort of defines how inter-doctor meetings are going to work from now until forever, because he's the one that defines the sort of bantering relationship that undercutting uh, the friendly insults or not-so-friendly insults um, that are going to get repeated. I mean, it's still every time now that another doctor comes in and sees another TARDIS, it's, you've you've redecorated. I don't like it. Like, that becomes the (laughs) defining thing about how the doctor is always going to interact with himself. Yeah, I, I think, you know, there was great clamor for kind of bringing doctors back, even in like, you know, the 1972, people were asking again and again, when are you going to bring other doctors back? So it's been around for a long time. And I think it's with Troughton, they kind of realized, you know, it's not exactly a heroic team up, even though, of course, it is in plot terms. It's, you know, comedy banter. That's that's what we come for. It's, uh, so, yeah, I think Troughton, you're right. He really defined that. And he sort of basically went, no, no, this is funny. Like, we can, we can really work with this. I wanted to close out and really sort of narrow it down to the essentials and talk about what are the qualities that we appreciate the most from the second doctor and what feels essential to him what do you see in a story and go yep that's the second doctor that's patrick troughton's doctor all the way yeah I i think it's it's a very hard one to define and I think that itself is the definition in some ways. It's the, the doctor is really tricky and, and, you know, he's, he's devious and he's cunning and he's funny and kind of like sort of, you know, a bit over the top kind of hilarious, you know, far more than perhaps he should be. And yet nevertheless seems to get the job done. And so it's kind of like getting a handle on that is, is not always easy. And I think, I think we'll probably be debating this for as long as Doctor Who's around in some ways, because I, I don't think we're ever settled on, oh yeah, yeah, I've got the, I've got a handle on this third doc, the second doctor. I know exactly who he is and, and that's it. He's, he's He's just always a little bit to the left of reality. Um, you know, I mean, he has a very interesting relationship with, like, television, for instance. And so, you know, he's always peering out of screens and so on like that. And you're like, wow, that's actually really neat in a sort of, you know, self-aware televisual age. And, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a really tricky one. I, I, you know, like, I love him. I find, I find him endlessly fascinating to watch. He can liven up dull stories. He can, you know, sort of bring an extra layer of things, you know, visually that, you know, even if you know what the audio is saying, what his face is doing is, is incredible. There's just so much going on simultaneously. I'm not going to be anywhere near as eloquent as Robert on this. It comes down to one word for me, devious. He's not uh, manipulative like the Seventh Doctor, but he is so... He's so subtle and so off-putting, and before you, before you know it, he has solved the problem. He has been the hero without being the hero. There are so many 
layers to him. And yet, with all of that, he is lighter and he is more fun. He is more physically entertaining. He's a more complex doctor for a show that is beginning to find its real feet. And he built a legacy. That's the that's the other thing that I think of when I think about the second Doctor is he is the reason that the show exists to this day. Actually, I just remember something that Sylvester McCoy said when he was cast, and, and he said that he said, "Oh, you know, like like you know, as a, as a much shorter man than the average, you know, I like the idea of the Doctor as the small man against the world." And I was like, "Yeah, that's that's the second Doctor for me. The small man against the world of like you know." you know bullies can kind of like you know loom over him or whatever and yet somehow when he triumphs it's it's so so much more impressive and yet you say that and i can hear perfectly in patrick crouton's voice small yeah (laughs) exactly (laughs) i think for me what i come to immediately when i try to define who the second doctor is is i think a little bit of a trickster a little bit more gentler i think than that implies that he is sort of changing that it he he is who he needs to be for a situation. He's got wit and humor, and he sometimes sets things right, and sometimes he's there to tear down all of your systems, that he's just there to, to cause a little bit of good chaos, good trouble. But there's such a, a warmth to him as well, uh, particularly in how he treats his companions uh, and looks out for them and protects them and just wants them to be happy. Um, that to me, I wouldn't say tempers the tricksterish nature of the second doctor, but adds a, a certain depth to it that there is good chaos and good trouble um, with genuine heart behind it. Uh, so that to me is the second doctor. Well, thank you so much, Robert, for joining us today to talk about the Patrick Troughton's Doctor, and we hope to see you again soon. No, thanks very much for having me. We'll see you at Gallifrey One. Thank you for joining us for This Week in Time Travel. You can find us online at thisweekintimetravel.com. We're also on Twitter at DRWhoThisWeek. You can find Chip on Twitter at numeral 2 minute time lord, And you can find me on Twitter and Tumblr at Whovian Feminism. And we're on Facebook, too. This Week in Time Travel is hosted by Jason Snell's The Incomparable Network, where you can support our show and all the others on the network by becoming a member. Just tick the box for our show. That's really important. TheIncomparable.com slash members. Thanks so much. Thanks also to Christopher Green for our original theme music and to David J. Lore for our original podcast artwork. We will talk to you next week on This Week in Time Travel. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.